This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Monday, October 17th. I'm Julia Caulfield. In today's headlines, San Miguel County plans for the future, smart talks, bus stops, a free box affair, and a mountain weather forecast. San Miguel County is planning for the future with a new regional master plan. A master plan is a really high-level document. It's a vision um, for how an area is going to grow over time. And, you know, identifying what we want the community to be in the future, how we're going to address everything that's coming forward. That's Kay Simonson, planning director for San Miguel County. The county is at the beginning stages of writing a new master plan for the east end. Of course, the, you know, the Telluride region, the valley, um, the subdivisions going north um, over to Deep Creek. We may expand it over to Grayhead because that area most closely associates with Telluride and is completely separate from Hastings Mesa. And then down through Ilium Valley and including Trout Lake, the Ofer Valley, uh, San Bernardo. And, and all the high country areas as well. And it's about time. The current master plan was adopted in 1989. There have been some adjustments and some updates over the years. But for the most part, it's been 1989. And, you know, so over 30 years, that's, that's a really long time to not update a plan. People were still living out by Pandora. Lawson Hill was not even, uh, it was barely a thought at that point. Um, the airport hadn't started yet. Um, Mountain Village hadn't incorporated. So many things have happened since then. When it comes to what's going in the master plan, Simonson says it will run the gambit. We'll be looking at a lot of different things. We'll be looking at land use, housing, transportation, uh, mobility. Uh, We'll be looking at um, natural and cultural resources, open space, parks, trails. Uh, Sustainability and resiliency will be be a big part of this plan that those weren't even words that were used in 1989. And, you know, we're so we're looking at sustainability for the community, the economy, and the climate. Uh, And that's really going to be woven throughout the whole plan. Simonson adds the plan isn't just an exercise to be completed and put on a shelf. The aim is to implement what's in there. For each of those topics, we set up goals. Um, And we also identify some action items, so things that we want to actually achieve uh, as we move forward. Um, What sort of things are we going to do to achieve the goal to, you know, say, provide more workforce housing Um, and outlining some actual, real, tangible ways of getting there? San Miguel County is only at the beginning phase of the plan development. There are three. And starting actually next week, we'll be having a lot of what we call stakeholder meetings, where we're talking to people who have actual information that can help us. Um, So a lot of organizations, a lot of uh, um, government agencies, uh, you know, it's very important to get information from them so we know what our resources are, we know what the big questions are, and uh, we know who's capable of doing what. From there, the planning process will look for community input. And finally, we get to the third step, which we call inform and um, empower. And that's when you start to see an actual draft uh, that uh, people can look at the content and give us feedback on what they think 
There is a website coming for residents to provide feedback and to access all meeting materials during the master plan process. And Simonson stresses the importance of getting all members of the community in the room. As we're going through it, if there's anybody that uh, you think is, hasn't been heard from, tell us and we'll figure out how to reach out to them and uh, get them involved as well. San Miguel County hopes to have its new East End Master Plan ready for adoption at the beginning of summer 2023. The San Miguel Authority for Regional Transportation is thinking about what possible expansions of service could look like, specifically when it comes to bus stops. What the Federal Highway Administration suggests is that most people are willing to walk five to 10 minutes, they say, or approximately a quarter mile to a half mile to get to a bus stop. That's Carrie DeStefano, Smart Operations Manager, speaking at a Smart Board meeting last week. She says, on the whole, the transit body is doing well. Most of the town of Nucla is within walking distance, or that recommended walking distance, of our bus stops. We've got three of them in Nucla. Natarita is the same. There are a couple areas outside our, that, that half mile that I think probably should be looked at. Um, one stop would be easy to pick up because it's right between Norwood and, or I mean, Nucla and Natarita. The other is a little farther out of the way. But DeStefano adds it's also important to look at shifts in population when thinking about service and stops. Nucla has been losing population. That, that could change, but as of the last 10 years, that has been happening. Natarita's population is also on the decline, but some housing could change that. According to Dina Sheriff, who's the, the West End Development Director, there are a couple parcels in that area that are either under contract or being looked at closely for some some housing. Um, one one in Nucleum, one in Natarita, they're both nine units. So that could make a difference in our ridership. Redvale and Rico aren't likely to grow greatly. Norwood, on the other hand. I think we are very likely to see a pretty substantial population increase in Norwood, especially given the interest in building employee housing over there. Also, Norwood's population is, is on the increase. There are two areas of interest. One is that if you're familiar with Norwood, the Pioneer Village, that's outside our current service area. And um, some of these parts, areas that are being looked at for employee housing are, they're still within that half mile, but there may be pressure on us to add another bus stop there. Ilium is the same, while Lawson Hill, DeStefano says, is pretty built out from a transit point of view. Finally, Mountain Village, which currently isn't part of SMART's year-round service. But we really need to pay attention to it because um, during the time, not only the off-seasons, but during the time we're going to have construction on the gondola, it's... Uh, we're going to really have to step up our, our our service there. Smart board member and Telluride Town Council member Adrian Christie adds, having a bus stop within an ideal radius isn't always enough. But you also have to consider the walkability of those mileages. And it, it's on the spur and some of the other places, while we might be within the circle, the reasonable access to that um bus stop is not great. The more smart can make concrete asks for what would be ideal bus stops along the spur and 
you know, insist that the town support them in that, the better. DiStefano shares the sentiment when it comes to Down Valley access. She notes the information around bus stops is just one piece of the puzzle. DiStefano's looking to collect as much information as possible, so SMART can work with consultants to develop a strategic operating plan moving into the future. Everyone remembers that amazing Freebox score. The perfect winter coat, the jumpsuit screaming to be part of Festivarian Nation, the Halloween costume you didn't know you were looking for. We all know it. The Freebox provides. And this week, the Freebox is teaming up with EcoAction Partners to celebrate all things free, box, and work on a textile recycling program for the community. It started from uh, the Telluride's Art District. They helped create the free box truck wrap and the call to the artists. And so since its completion, they've wanted to kind of do a showcase and uh, celebrate the free box truck and its wrap. That's Becky Boehm, Freebox supervisor. The truck is the one you'll often see parked outside the free box, wrapped up to geometrically look like the landscape of Telluride. But a party to celebrate the free box truck quickly turned into a community waste reducing endeavor. Enter Carissa Melke, Energy and Outreach Programs Coordinator with EcoAction Partners. Textile recycling is, um, you know, basically taking items that people don't want that could still be worn and used or items that are stained, ripped, torn. Um, and basically those items kind of get sorted and the things that are reusable um, basically get bailed and larger companies um Basically, there's like a market out there to then be they they buy those clothes and they ship them off to mostly um, developing countries. And um, so that's where kind of all the items that can be reused go. And then everything that really can't be reused, stained and torn items, those are getting broken down and made into like industrial like wiping cloths and things like that. And then obviously, if they pick out items that they just can't do with, you know, can't make the cloths or can't reuse them, then those items end up going to the landfill. Milky has been working with Eco Cleaners. Eco Cleaners is one of our green businesses. Um, they're a member of ours. And I was working with Megan and just kind of, you know, talking with her about, you know, what she wanted to see out of the program with her business. And she mentioned textile um, recycling. You know, she owns eco cleaners and she owns a laundromat. So she sees quite a bit of textile waste through those um, alone. Melky sees the free box as a way to jumpstart the program. I walk by the free box every day and chat with Becky every day. And her and I just kind of got, you know, on the topic. And I thought, well, I'm, you know, I see her pulling out lots of garbage bags full of textiles every day that people put in the free box that aren't usable. And um, yeah, we just kind of started chatting from there and trying, you know, to figure out if it's feasible. And um, so, yeah, we're just kind of excited to bring it to the event and get some public comment and input and um, hopefully some good ideas of how we can move it forward. But the event won't be all public comment and no party. We're going to kind of bring a little element of the free box itself to the event by filling up the truck with items from the free box, um, some clothing items, some costume items, and just some fun stuff um, so that, you know, folks can participate, dress up, um, feel free to bring your own free box outfit from home that you really like or a costume that you found there. Just kind of want to bring that element of the free box to the transfer warehouse. There will also be live music from local band Lavalanche as well as a free box costume contest. 
The Freebox costume party will take place at the Transfer Warehouse on Thursday, October 17th at 5 p.m. Construction is abounding in the final weeks before the ground freezes for winter. In Mountain Village, the broadband department will be moving its main fiber internet lines so Telluride Ski and Golf can make some repairs. As such, Mountain Village will experience two nights of TV and internet outages this week. Mountain Village officials note they apologize for the inconvenience but say it's important work and was intentionally scheduled during the off-season. Internet and TV will be out in Mountain Village from 10 p.m. on Wednesday, October 19th until 8 a.m. on Thursday, October 20th, and from 10 p.m. on Thursday, October 20th until 8 a.m. on Friday, October 21st. To ride or not to ride? That is the question. The future of Telluride's Ride Festival may be decided this week. The Telluride Parks and Recreation Commission and Telluride Town Council will hold a joint work session to discuss the Ride Festival's proposal to hold a festival September 29th through October 1st, 2023. Following the work session, Parks and Rec will vote on whether to approve the use of Town Park for the festival during those dates. Public participation and input is encouraged at the meeting. The meeting to discuss the Ride Festival for 2023 will take place on Wednesday, October 19th at noon. Participants can attend the meeting via Zoom. A New Mexico woman was rescued last week outside Silverton after spending two nights injured in the wilderness. According to San Juan County officials, the woman had been hiking in the Deer Park area when she left the trail heading down towards the Animas Riverbank, fell and broke her leg. After spending two nights outside, she pulled herself to a visible spot along the Animas Riverbank where she was able to flag the Durango Silverton train as it passed. Crew from the railroad partnered with the Silverton Medical Rescue Team to rescue the woman. She was transported by helicopter to Montrose Memorial Hospital. Colorado's county clerks are warning of increased misinformation and threats ahead of the upcoming midterms. KOTO's Lucas Brady Woods reports they're also having a hard time finding election staff. County clerks say they're seeing more misinformation than they did ahead of the 2020 presidential election. According to the FBI, Colorado is one of seven states with increased election monitoring because of the high frequency and severity of threats to election officials. Weld County Clerk and Recorder Carly Coppice says the state's clerks are working together to prevent more damage to public trust. This is really taking a, a toll on some of us, and we're really wanting to make sure that when these are growing threats, we are taking them seriously. Coppice says Colorado's election system is secure and that clerks will continue to strengthen security measures to keep it that way. But she says clerks are struggling to find enough staff. That's partly because many applicants have known biases against the election system and can't be hired. I'm Lucas Brady-Woods in Denver. A new report shows that Wyoming is home to the largest intact sagebrush habitat in the West. As KHOL's Hannah Mersbach reports for Rocky Mountain Community Radio, Grand Teton wants to keep it that way. It's a sunny and windy fall day in Grand Teton National Park, and the mountains loom over a plot of flat valley land in the park's southern section. The 95-acre site, known as Antelope Flats, is a bottleneck for mule deer, elk, and pronghorn, which all funnel through during their regular migrations. 
But right now, the land is empty. No animals, no plants, just dirt. Soon the land could be filled with native sagebrush. We see some kind of heavy equipment. We use tractors for tilling. Behind me is the seed drill that will be used to seed much of the area. That's ecologist Laura Jones, who's leading the National Park's sagebrush restoration project in Antelope Flats. The land was originally covered in sagebrush, but homesteaders removed the native plants in the late 1800s and planted non-native pasture grasses in their place to create hayfields for their cattle to graze in. Park staff took those grasses out last year as part of a project to restore sagebrush to 4,500 acres of valley land. Since 2007, the park has either restored or is in the process of restoring nearly 1,400 acres. That includes the Antelope Flats area. Even though the homesteaders are long gone, their lasting impact on the environment remains with non-native grasses. For species here in the park, where we are supporting a diversity of native flora and fauna, uh, this this almost monoculture doesn't provide the same ecosystem processes and services to the wildlife. Now, with the grasses finally gone, park staff is tilling the land to change the soil properties before planting the sagebrush seeds later this fall. The plants could take over 20 years to fill in, and Grand Teton will be tracking progress with researchers at the University of Wyoming. The seeds were all hand-collected from other areas of the national park, a strategy that gives the plants the best chance of being fit for the environment. And these seeds aren't only sagebrush. It's also other shrubs like bitterbrush and rabbitbrush and a diversity of grasses and wildflowers. And that diversity of, of life, of plants, supports wildlife throughout the whole year. A healthy sagebrush habitat could ease migration for the many animals that flow through the valley. A plant commonly paired with sagebrush, bitterbrush, is an important food source for moose. Even grizzlies rely on sagebrush, digging up the plants and eating their roots. They're also food for smaller mammals, and then you'll see like foxes out in the, in the winter jumping for those, those small mammals under the snow. It's pretty cool. For decades, the fight to protect sagebrush habitats has centered on conservation for one species, sage grouse. The birds rely on sagebrush for food and protective cover throughout the year. But now experts across the nation are taking a broader approach. On September 22nd, a team of scientists from a dozen organizations published a report mapping out the many threats to the sagebrush ecosystem, like invasive grasses and wildfires. It shows that the West is losing over 1 million acres of sagebrush a year. The authors are urging government agencies and conservationists to focus on defending areas with sagebrush that's already thriving. You're getting the best bang for your buck. That's Zach Wurzebach, one of the authors of the report and a program director at the Center for Large Landscape Conservation in Bozeman. It just makes more sense to work outwards where it's gonna, you're going to have an easier time restoring um, and addressing stressors such as conifer encroachment or invasive annual grasses uh, than going to those places that have just they're just overrun with them. Unlike some of these places, sagebrush in Wyoming doesn't need as much work. The report showed that the state has the largest intact sagebrush ecosystem in the West. This is likely because the state's soil and climate make it resistant to invasive annual grasses and wildfires. The Great Basin, which includes much of Nevada and Utah and parts of California and Oregon, 
has been hit by megafires that take out native sagebrush and give way to invasive grasses. But Wyoming has been a bit more lucky. Still, Wurzelbach says this means conservation and restoration work is all the more important. And while the picture in Wyoming is very good, you know, Wyoming is a stronghold for sagebrush habitat. You know, the data shows there are some kind of big problem areas, particularly in drier areas like the Bighorn Basin. I think a key message, you know, moving forward for all this is that it's good, but there's still going to be a lot of work that needs to be done to keep it good. Back in the Grand Teton National Park, staff and volunteers are doing just that. They're investing in areas where work is needed and protecting the sites that are already thriving. This includes the expansive sagebrush flats that stretch out on either sides of Teton Park Road and Highway 89. Laura Jones investigates one of those sites off the highway. We're looking at a healthy intact sagebrush ecosystem, you know, like a third cover of sagebrush. And we also have a lot of grasses, native grass species. Jones hopes that one day the Antelope Flat site will look like this one. Of course, that won't be for decades, but what puts down roots now will benefit Grand Teton for years to come. Hannah Mersbach, KHOL News. The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly clear skies tonight with a low around 35 degrees. Tuesday should be sunny during the day and clear at night with a high in the mid-50s and a low in the mid-30s. Wednesday calls for sunny skies with a high near 60 degrees. Wednesday night expect mostly clear skies with a low around 35. This has been the news for Monday, October 17th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206.